0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sarah Manguso. Her latest book is Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. She says she began documenting her life when she was 11 years old. The document became a daily diary in late high school, and it's now over 800,000 words. Ongoingness examines why she practiced obsessive self-documentation for 25 years and why she stopped. She says in a nutshell, her son was born. It might seem self-evident to those who know anything about parenthood that there would be upheavals. She says, though, motherhood brought two unexpected upheavals. First, her concept of time changed from a series of documentable moments to a river that carries moments away. And second, she found herself literally becoming time, becoming the background against which her son lives. Ongoingness is her third memoir. Two Kinds of Decay is about illness, she says. The Guardians is about suicide, ongoingness. The current book is about memory. All three are about mortality. Sarah Manguso, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate you uh, being uh, with us. So uh, tell me, when when the diary began? How old were you?
1: Well, the diary had been written in sort of ribs and drabs during childhood. Um, I think many girls are given diaries, in elementary school and expected to sort of beautifully fill them. But the diary as it exists as a document started on one night when I was 14 years old. I had just been to my first art op- art opening and I had just had my first cup of wine, you know, out of, a, out of a Dixie cup in some little gallery in Boston. And when I got home that night, I realized that I was still partly contained in the moment. It had been such an intense experience. I, I looked at this painting next to a friend that I loved, and I realized when I got home that I would have to write down, as I say in the book, everything that had happened and everything that I had thought while it had happened, and then everything that I thought while I had been recording what had happened. And that sort of, in, in one session, changed the diary forever, and it then became an extremely inclusive, almost obsessive practice.
0: And you're right that you you wish that uh, you could hit the pause button, not your words, mine, on, on life, so that you could you could record everything. As you say, not only what happened, but, but everything about what happened, the, the emotions and such.
1: Yeah, that's actually a great metaphor. Uh, the metaphor that I use in the book is that I wish there were buffer days between the real days, so I would have time to... Sufficiently document the real day.
0: So this this is this is intense awareness, right? There, there's some virtue there, and also some vice. Perhaps there's some obsessiveness about it.
1: Yeah, it just seems a necessity to me to, to thoroughly document and understand an experience. And until I had done that, I felt that I was really leap walking through life, I hadn't really thoroughly finished an experience until I documented it. Hmm.
0: So it wasn't real, I suppose.
1: Oh, that's an interesting word, real. Well, I don't know that that worried me so much as simply the sensation that I, I sort of felt trapped still within these moments that had long passed. And the practice of documenting them and the practice of really... Um, not just sort of writing uh, cathartically about what had happened during the day, but really trying to write about each day in prose as good as I could get it, as compact as I could get it, as accurate as I could get it. That was the practice that made me feel that I could move on to the next day.
0: And you write that you were terrified you might forget something, might miss something important, this, was a fear.
1: Yes, yes, it, it, it really was um the diary was a byproduct of this intense and ongoing anxiety that somehow i I would become it, it, it seems it seems ridiculous to, to me as I say this now because the the anxiety has well as you as you know having read the book, the anxiety has subsided, but before it did, it felt like the biggest problem I had. And I realized how kind of grandiose and impossibly pathological that sounds. But without, without, as I say, emptying the reservoir of memory every now and then, uh, this this anxiety would well up. And certainly during a very intense experience, very emotionally intense experience, or, or during a very full day or a series of days, I always felt the same Pale, pale anxiety that the reservoir was filling, and that it was my my job, my absolute need, to empty that reservoir into the document, into this ongoing document, before I would really feel okay again.
0: Now, this ex- this feeling, uh, I suppose, and then your experience here is is this unique? Do you think have you had other people reach out to you as they've learned about this to say they experience? that have the same experiences?
1: I don't think it's unique at all, no. Um, in fact, I think now, it's, at this moment in the culture, I think it's very unusual to find somebody who doesn't practice some kind of self-documentation. Um, I think the kind of self-documentation that's widely practiced now is mostly public, mostly on uh, some outlet of social media, and I don't know necessarily whether this sort of this this same anxious thread is what impels people to self-document. But um, I, I wouldn't say that I am unique in having this thread. Um, I know that that sort of gentler uh, cases of graphomania, the obsessive need to write are really not that unusual. Uh, you know, you walk into any city park and you see people scribbling in notebooks. It's, um you, well, I guess now, um, now that it's so easy to write on a smartphone, in fact, that's usually how I do it when I'm away from my desk, um, uh, the practice is a, is a bit more invisible. You don't really see that I'm writing. It maybe, be that I'm just playing a video game or something. Um, but I, I don't think I'm at all unique in feeling this pressing need to document, this pressing anxiety, uh, nor in just the practice of self-documenting itself. Um, I, I haven't taken any, any scientific polls, but I think probably those who don't document at all, don't document their lives at all, would probably be in the minority.
0: Hmm. So you think that's uh, that's grown in number, and I guess maybe a percentage people are documenting their lives. What's the what's the impulse? Do you think all these people out there writing, and, and I guess maybe it's a different impulse. People who then post, or is it the same? Yeah.
1: Well, no. I think you're absolutely right. I think the impulse to self-document publicly and the impulse to self-document privately probably arise from some two very different. Sorts of anx- anxieties or needs or wishes. Self-documenting publicly is an attempt to connect, right? Isn't it? It's 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 a way of participating in something larger than one's own solitary life. Uh, self-documenting privately, I guess there must be uh, a variety of reasons to do, I you know either type of self-documentation. Um, what I can say is that, for me, it arose from this particular anxiety that was central to my experience of life and time for more than two decades and has since subsided. I um, I have to confess something, though. The subtitle of the book is The End of a Diary, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. And I, what I have to confess is that the diary hasn't ended. You know, it, it, it hasn't sort of... Been, been put out of its misery or, or been thrown into a fire. The end that I'm talking about in the book is really the end of this particular anxiety that if I didn't self-document thoroughly and accurately and regularly, I would just get swept up in time and begin sleepwalking through life with no awareness of what I was feeling. The, the diary now, for me, uh, it It's almost just, uh, it's a habit, but it doesn't feel like a bad or harmful habit. I usually log what I do during the day, what kind of work I do, uh, who I see, uh, what I read, and um, if my son does something interesting, I log it there, too.
0: So you've said that uh, you started out the book, Ongoingness, envisioning it as a book about compulsive diary-keeping. Read a yeah. lot about other people's diaries, and you talk about graphomania, excessive urge to to write. So that's that's what you set out to do.
1: It is. Uh, I felt quite sure around 2010 that this book would be a book about, as I put it um, in my diary at that point. See, I have very good records of <laughs> what I thought I was working on. Um, I thought it would be a book about the particular anxieties of graphomania. And I envisioned it as, as you said, a a sort of well-researched journalistic book, including the pathophysiology and plenty of interesting case studies. And intertwined with that uh, sort of uh, larger reportage, I would include sort of vignettes from my own experience with the obsessive urge to write. And uh, I, I really envisioned it as um, uh, a, a sort of a science book for the layperson about this this particular neurological quirk. About two years into the work on this book, I'd gathered lots of data. I'd read about memory science. I had made plans to go to a couple of labs in Santa Cruz and New York. I became pregnant and gave birth to my son. And that experience, of course, changed many things about my life, but most important was that my experience of time itself began to change, and that, in turn, changed the diary. And I realized I could no longer write this book that I had been so certain I would soon finish, because I no longer was interested in graphomania. I was no longer affected by it and i realized that something much more interesting had happened so the book became an essay about in fact what had happened this this radical change in my experience of time and it became an essay about the end of this 25 year project the end of the diary
0: so your one thing you write that your pregnancy did is it really messed with your memory and and that's very interesting because a, I think that the diary had very much to do with memory, and and I guess how you were trying to, I don't know, make a stand against the onrush of time, but your your, your memory changed as you became pregnant.
1: Absolutely, yes. The diary was my primary tool against this sort of low-level constant fear that I would be swept up in time, and... When I became pregnant, almost immediately, I, I began suffering not just the familiar exhaust, you know, physical and mental exhaustion that I knew was coming, but also a very bizarrely, uh, to me it felt bizarrely almost complete inability to retain anything in my working memory, in, in what used to be called short-term memory. And so I would find myself in the middle of the day and at the end of the day with nothing to write. And 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 in addition to that, I I would just have so many instances throughout the day of having forgot something that I needed to bring somewhere or you know forgotten to do some errands. And this may sound perfectly uninteresting, but up until that point, I considered myself a rather high-strung and competent type A person. So that was just so damaging to my sense of who I was and how I functioned in the world. And I realized that this sort of constellation of rather minor problems all had to do with the loss of my short-term memory.
0: Hmm. Uh, It's interesting. You've also said that you were reluctant to represent pregnancy as a weakness in in this way right because uh, oh, yeah. over, over a long period of time this has been a I guess a cudgel used to to demonstrate that women you know aren't intellectual in this way.
1: Absolutely yeah I, I, I wrestled with that and every time I opened my mouth to, to talk about this exact problem, I went because there is a social imperative for women not to represent pregnancy, as a period of anything less than normal strength and normal ability, because that represent that representation of, of pregnancy as, as sort of a weakening or a lessening or a tiring force, just as you said, becomes a cudgel for the patriarchy in order to represent that mothers are less valuable than other human beings. On the other hand, though, um, I, I still have to include that, that that. that utter surprise I had that I couldn't remember anything because I think it's also a supreme injustice to mothers to represent motherhood as trivial and up until I had the experience of pregnancy and motherhood myself I was in total thrall to the patriarchal cliches that motherhood is this trivial thing that you should just kind of do in the background of your regular life and uh, I, I thought you know, I I, I I had of course read about this new type of love that I would feel, but I had been so well trained by the patriarchal cliches to think of that as just oh, that's just some mushy thing that that that, that women feel, but you should try not to feel that because it's much more useful for you to be a writer and a teacher and you know, those are those are much nobler pursuits than merely being a mother. And, of course, the real experience of motherhood is so much more both socially and emotionally complicated than that.
0: We'll go to break, and then we come back. I want to talk about how motherhood changed her changed her whole concept of time, of being in time, the whole idea of ongoingness, the title of the book. Before we go to break, maybe I get you to tell me a couple of these anecdotes that you recount in the book that uh, recount how you, a person with good memory, lost your memory during during pregnancy.
1: Yeah, well, I had a very strange experience of realizing um, that my very good friend's father had died two years earlier. And at the moment, I, I realized not only that he had died, I actually read about this in a magazine article, but I also had realized that I had never sent my condolences. Two years before, so I so I in, immediately dashed off a note, just feeling so ashamed and so really guilty for not having been there for my friend in this particular very important way. And he immediately wrote back, "Oh you, no, you 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 sent a very nice card. We talked about this several times. I have no memory of it." Hmm. Similarly, a friend of mine, um, this was within the same week, which is why I remember these so well. Three or four days later, a friend of mine said that his apartment had been burgled, and my first thought was, "Oh, what a good thing the dog wasn't hurt during the burglary." And he said, "No, Sarah, we we put the dog down six months ago, and I had still I have no memory of that either." And then that that sort of very quickly constellated into this into this into this question of you know. Am, am I specifically forgetting people and animals who have died? Have I just, has my brain just turned everyone back on again, as, as though all of these people and animals are still alive? And so what I what I did was I hurriedly made a list of all of the people that I knew were dead, starting with Mozart, and you know coming up through my friends who were dead, my first parents who I knew were dead, and it was a pretty substantial list. So after making the list, I decided, you know, I I would probably be okay. And in fact, this this, specific experience happened only those two times. It didn't happen again.
0: Hmm. We're talking with Sarah Manguso. Her latest book is a memoir, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. It's out from Graywolf Press. And uh, she's author of uh, previous memoirs, The Two Kinds of Decay, which recounts her experiences with a very rare uh, disease, uh, also, The Guardians is about a suicide. Ongoingness is about memory. She says all three of those books are about mortality. And we're going to continue this discussion following this break.
1: So on any given day, you are lied to between 10 and 200 times. And that's why you need to become a lie spotter. What do you think about my hair? Your hair is great. Thank Swear you. to God on my mother's grave. Right, that's what episode. we would call a religious reference combined with oh. overemphasizing one's truthfulness. I'm Guy Raz, why we lie, why we believe them, next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Monday morning
2: at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis. Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring seasonal local and organic foods. Open for breakfast 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. and lunch 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday, Sunday brunch 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. And menu information available at CafeIbis.com.
0: Thanks for joining us for Utah. We're talking with Sarah Manguso. Her latest memoir is Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. It's out from Gray Wolf Press. Uh, she began documenting her life when she was 11 years old. Her diary is now over 800,000 words. Uh, and uh, she set out to examine uh, obsessive self-documentation in her book. And she became pregnant. And uh, very interesting observations on pregnancy, time, mortality, You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraccess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Before we uh, jump into some of the changes uh, in your perceptions of time and mortality on on pregnancy, uh, you say, uh, Sarah Manguso, that um, the diary was not for public consumption. There were... Only three snoops over the years, your father, your college boyfriend, and a roommate. Other than that, diary has not been read by another person. Uh, I wonder if you tell me the story about your college boyfriend. This is uh, hilarious. Uh
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I should say that there there were three snoops that I know of. Um, Everybody else, if if in fact there was anybody else, covered his or her tracks. The first time anybody read the diary that I knew about, um, was when I was in college. And so the document had been a Daily Diary for about three, three, almost four years by then. It was 75 pages long. And, uh, well, this, this fact will, will enter later in the anecdote. But um, I lent my laptop, or laptops were relatively rare in the early 90s, to my boyfriend because he needed to write some paper overnight. He going to up all night write five or six papers all at once and so I went in the laptop and I went to bed and in the morning when I went to open the laptop I found that there was a little Microsoft Word icon in the middle of the desktop which I normally kept absolutely empty and the icon said please read me Sarah and I thought I, I had no idea what what it would be, you know, whether whether it was something some some love note or or you know are we breaking I had no idea. I opened it, and then the first sentence was, "Dear Sarah, I just read your diary, all seventy five pages of it." And the first thing I felt was, "Huh, wow, seventy five pages." I you know I hadn't I hadn't taken the time to count words or pages uh, up until that point. And uh, so there was this this long, I think, well-meaning letter uh, that uh, my boyfriend had composed, and it was largely about his analysis of, of this self uh, this, this sort of private self that I'd been documenting in my diary. And he he felt that it was his his duty to try to help me be a better person. because of course, I had written all about envy and jealousy and feelings of failure and um you know it was my diary but uh, you know upon 30 seconds of reflection i realized also that had he in fact read all 75 pages he would inevitably have come upon the passage in which i described how i could barely feel him inside me
0: so he was going to fix you i think
1: yeah, I think he really wanted. To, I mean, I think I think it it to him felt like a really worthy, um, in fact, um, necessity. Hmm. That's not how it felt to me, though.
0: Yeah, you you didn't end up with him, I think. I did not. Yep. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, what are we? It's just part of this passage. Um, you say when you were just summarizing this, you say when you were twenty three. You began seeing a psychotherapist because you couldn't bear the idea that after the end of an affair, all your shared memories might be expunged from the mind of the other. And then you go on to say your life exists mostly in the memories of people you've known. And, of course, in 150 years, no one will be alive to have ever known you. That's uh, it's a common condition. Of course, we we, we all have these worries. Maybe you t- took them to the uh, a bigger degree, a higher degree. What do you talk a bit about yeah. that?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think, um, well, that passage ends um, with the idea that being forgotten like that, you know, being being subject to being forgotten like that feels more like death than death. Mm-hmm. And at the point that I wrote that, at the point that I felt that and believed it wholeheartedly, I still felt that the, the real content of my life was... My memory was my not just my my memory as as a sort of general vague thing, but the catalog of memory of all of the things that had ever happened to me that had ever happened to me by myself that had ever happened to me in the company of another person and it felt really it felt psychologically unsafe to to go around through life without this complete catalog, Um, I I see now that this is just another way in which I wanted to exert control over something that cannot be controlled. Um, You you cannot control what people remember of you. We can't control even what people think of you. Hmm. But I felt that if I weren't convinced that everybody else was doing exactly what I was with this meticulous documentation of everything that had ever happened, I felt the world was just, just it, it, it was not psychologically safe for me to inhabit it. Mm. Ultimately, of course, I realized that of course people remember things of other people and of course, you know, during and after a relationship, and everybody's memories are are intense and varied and you know fairly fairly uh, broad and deep. Um, but my somewhat I think pathological fear was that at the moment uh, of a breakup there would be an almost um, in, you know immediate wiping of the, the hard drive inside the other's brain. Um, and and I, I realize how kind of bizarre this sounds as if people are machine, are, are memory machines that can be manipulated as easily as, say, a, a computer. You know, I can just get a, a great big magnet, wipe it over the motherboard of this laptop, and it's just gone. And, and of course, you know, there there are um, there are uh, you know massive. Uh, Head traumas that could, in fact, hide memories from a person forever, or for a long time, or or partly forever. But the way that I was imagining that would happen inevitably at the end of every relationship was it was just it was just wrong. And I think it was just a symptom of my greater anxiety that if I didn't. Possess this complete catalog of my life, I would not be okay.
0: Of course, there's. It uh, puts me in mind of the the, the movie Eternal Sunshine, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where you know sci-fi representation of, of people who would intentionally erase memories to to also erase the pain. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, and and I I know I'm not alone in thinking we could only just get that up and running in a few years. Um, there's a, a line in the book in which I I realized that w- that very early childhood memories I thought had been absolutely expunged from my mind are 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 here, are still here with me. Um and I and I write, Everything that's ever happened has left its little wound. Mm-hmm. And um and that sort of becomes the the well, one of the two realizations with pregnancy and motherhood, um that realization that these old old memories are still with me was was the other experience that really changed the diary.
0: I wonder if the reverse is also true. You talk about uh, you, know, you know immortality through other people's memories. Uh, then did you feel an especial responsibility to remember others and and give them that immortality?
1: That's a great question, and I have to confess that i I never felt this responsibility um, although i i I do think I was somewhat more attached to all the little memories of uh, of of a relationship i think I think maybe my um, inclination toward nostalgia toward romantic nostalgia was Maybe a little bit greater than the average, that of the average person, but but no, um, and and I know that this is probably betraying a real fixation on myself and a, a, a general unawareness of whether other people shared my worry.
0: Now, what about recording? We talked about this a little earlier in in the program, but but that could be a way to immortality, to to I don't know. Outrun time, cheat time, or or you know overcome uh, the passage of of time and, and memory. Uh, your diary was not to be read by other people. Um, and uh, you know some people do write just for themselves, but others write so that there's something of them to, that outlasts them. Yeah,
1: absolutely. The diary was meant to supplement my my physiological memory. You know, my just just my powers of recall, using my, my brain. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. that These questions of immortality that seem absolutely relevant to the very idea that one would make uh, a physical diary, um, of course, one, one must think about what happens to a diary upon one's death. Is it then there as an artifact? To be enjoyed and to be read by others, and and isn't it really just a service to other people? This this document that I have spent so much time working on, and I have to confess, you know, I'm I'm not. I I do have my vanity certainly, and I I write and publish work all the time, ongoing. This is my sixth book, but I really don't think of my diary as. Being for anybody, as I write in the book, it's the only document I've ever written, the only piece of writing that I've ever composed that's really meant for an audience of zero. Mm-hmm. Um, it it becomes it becomes more strange to me. Um, that fact becomes more strange to me when I have to admit that the time that I take in composing and even revising the sentences in the diary is no different from the, the amount and the quality of the time that I take to compose and revise my work for publication. So in other words, I, I don't write the diaries, this sort of cathartic streaming out of um, impressions of the day. It's not a rough draft. It's a piece of writing. It's it's not so much a therapeutic tool as it is a piece of writing and an opportunity for me to practice writing good sentences. I've been called perverse for this very this very practice, for the practice of going back days later, or sometimes even years later,
2: and, re- and,
1: and, and revising the prose in the diary. Um, the word true gets gets some. Um, kind of drifts into the conversation at this point, usually, um, usually in a series of questions. Well, is the diary then less true if you're revising it? Isn't it more true uh, after your first attempt, your closest attempt to the actual moment, to record that moment? And, um, it, you know, just in, in these conversations about what it means to revise a diary, I I think the word true has a kind of moral tinge that complicates the, the question. And for me, I, I'm not really trying for the, I'm not trying for truth, as, as as I understand the word. I'm trying for accuracy, and not just accuracy of, of um, the event on record, but accuracy of the, the emotional experience of having had it. And if I can make better sense of uh, some inchoate, vague feeling five days after I have the feeling, then I had better make that revision and, and, and change what I originally wrote about it. Hmm.
0: And what what's your goal then? You're 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 making better sense out of this inchoate, you know, uh, feeling. Perhaps what's what's the goal?
1: Yes, that is that that is. That is the essential goal. I'm I'm recording it accurately, and I'm making sense of it, and I'm understanding the experience that I had. Without the diary, I mean, I would just sort of go from, oh, I don't know, this morning uh, I woke up in a hotel in Iowa, and I, I went to the hotel breakfast, and uh, a woman had spilled coffee everywhere, and... Uh, And and as I helped her mop it up, we had a sort of, you know, one of those conversations that will probably be the only conversation I have with this particular human in my entire life. But it was just, it was so emotionally rich. You know, there were were moments of embarrassment and shame and kindness. And um, had I been writing the diary in the old way, the way that I originally started it, I would have written so much about this really profound emotional experience of connecting with somebody over an experience of embarrassment, embarrassment and shame, and kindness, and, and ultimately friendship. It's that it's that sort of material that I I felt I I had to I just deeply wanted to understand in its entirety. I didn't I didn't want to go around sort of sort of uh, bouncing from, from one experience like that to the next, to the next, to the next. It's possible that I was a little bit enthralled to the idea of progress, like if I came to be able to understand what it was to have an experience like that, maybe I could live my life on some, some higher, more self-aware emotional level.
0: Let's take another break. We'll come back uh, more with uh, Sarah Manguso, who her book is Ongoingness: The End of a Diary. Uh, her diary is now over eight hundred thousand words. Uh, she has had an, an obsession, I guess she she would describe it that way, of uh, of self documentation. And uh, then she uh, describes the changes that happened, her view of time, her view of mortality, when she became pregnant and uh, delivered her son. More following the break.
2: On the way, we'll drop in on a concert at Symphony Space in New York City to hear the Imani Winds playing an Afro-Cuban concerto by their flutist Valerie Coleman and her recent concert in Copenhagen. The Danish Radio Chamber Orchestra plays Mozart's Symphony No. 40. It's on the next performance today from APM.
0: Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr.
2: Eat your fruits and veggies. You've likely heard this statement since childhood. However, research shows that it is good advice. Fresh produce is loaded with natural compounds that protect our bodies from disease. I'm talking about hundreds of compounds called antioxidants and phytochemicals that reduce inflammation in our bodies and improve our immunity. Fruits and veggies are low in calories, which is great for weight control, but they're big in volume, so they fill you up and satisfy hunger. Instead of telling yourself to eat less food, eat more food, eat more of the right food. Slice an apple on your oatmeal, grab a banana for a snack, and start your dinner with a colorful salad. Fill half your plate with fresh fruits and veggies, and you'll be a winner for life. Be well, Utah.
0: I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. My guest is Sarah Manguso. Her latest book is a memoir, collection of essays, Ongoingness, the End of a Diary. Uh, She began documenting her life when she was 11 years old. The document became a daily diary in late high school, uh, over 800,000 words now. Ongoingness examines why she practiced obsessive self-documentation for 25 years and why she stopped. And in a word, it's motherhood. You're welcome to join this conversation at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail.com. and we're on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio. So, Sarah Manguso, you you say, uh, I'll just quote you. What I'm saying is that I've become, in a way, inured to the passage of time. I'm not really paying attention to what's happening to me anymore. No longer observing steadfastly the things that have changed since yesterday. That's a big change. That's due to motherhood.
1: Yes. Well, to to use the familiar phrase, uh, the experiences of pregnancy and motherhood caused me to understand that my diary as, uh, as a memory tool was neither necessary nor sufficient. Um, it was shown to me to be no longer sufficient, while during pregnancy, I found that I basically forgot things as soon as they happened to me. I had almost nothing to record in the diary. And then in early motherhood, oh, I had the experience of my very early childhood preverbal memories coming back to me in the context of witnessing this, this pre-verbal creature, my young son. As I was feeding him, I had the sensory memory of being fed. As I watched him play, I had the sensory memory of playing in my own crib. And that showed me that the diary really wasn't necessary if I wanted to access this broad, deep collection of my own memories.
0: You say that uh, the mother becomes the background against which the baby lives. The mother becomes time. What if you talk about that? Yes.
1: Uh, sure. Well, until I was a mother, until I was a mother spending time with this other creature who needed me every instant of the day, um, until that experience, I really conceived of myself as a thing living in the world. I thought of myself as, as this entity sort of both separate but including uh, separate but included in the universe. And then the experience of being someone's mother, the experience of being the mother to a newborn, caused me to understand and even remember what I thought when I was very young. That to a young child, a mother is this unchanging entity. A mother is a monolith. A mother is the background against which a baby or a very young child lives. And so I realized that myself my, my sense of self changed from the sense that I was a thing living in the world to the to the conviction that... I was a world. I was the background against which my son lived.
0: Uh, you write movingly as well about your students, and um, you, you say your students still don't know what they will never be. You, you say their hope is so bright you can almost see it. You you've now moved to you know I guess into your forties. You've you've lived some life, and there, there's some things I guess you've come to terms with. You'll you'll never have some things you never you don't have to wonder now whether you'll have it or not. Students are in that precarious beginning position.
1: Yes, it's precarious and it's so exciting. I remember so vividly the experience of being mostly potential, of of not even really having had the opportunity to try to do very much. And uh, I, I just I remember that period of early adulthood before uh, attempting jobs or relationships, I just remember that period of almost pure potential as being just very, very exciting. And now, in in I guess what I could call the beginning of middle age, I actually feel great solace in knowing the things that uh, have absolutely happened that can never unhappen. And also, as you said, the things that will never happen. Um, I will never be a physicist. I will never be uh, a soldier. And uh, on the other hand, as I wrote to a friend, one of the great solaces of my life now is that I no longer have to wonder whether I I will have or should have children. When I'm with my students, I feel this excitement all the time. It's, um, It's this excitement about about beginnings, about um, just this general feeling that everything is about to start right now, just one more moment. And um, it's a great privilege to get to be around people who are just embodying that feeling so deeply. But on the other hand, you know who embodies it even more deeply is an infant for whom Really, just almost, almost every part of him is is just its potential. He's he's barely done a thing in his life yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of a blank slate. You can imagine and hope and dream and. Yes. And, and I guess you you live that way through through your son, as as parents do. Uh, you say that um, all three of your memoirs are about mortality. Uh, in uh, t- in two kinds of decay, which is about this rare illness that you that you've had, I guess still have it's in remission, right? Um, that you you resist mortality, in the guardians about a suicide, you realize you can't avoid it. In the current book, ongoingness, you accept mortality totally.
1: Yeah. Um, I, well, it it was a, a good project for me to try to write about. Well, to try to come to some kind of understanding of the three books as. Belonging to a a common pursuit, I think it's pretty much inevitable that if a writer, you know, stays writing for X number of years or X number of books, themes will arise. You know, common themes will arise and obsessions will sort of come to the surface without the writer even trying, and in, in fact, sometimes in spite of the writer trying not to write about the same thing again. um, I definitely fall into both of those categories. Um, The Two Kinds of Decay is about uh, a rare autoimmune disease that I developed when I was 21. I'm now 41. It's uh, been 20 years, and the disease has been remission for just over one year. And uh, I expect... To have another bout of it at some point in my life, and then and then uh, have another remission, and so on and so forth. And um, I and yet I think of the problem of the disease as having been been really solved for me. Not solved because the disease is gone. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's not, and it never will be. But writing the book, writing the two kinds of VK helped me understand what had happened during that first long bout which really was um, essentially four years of being in and out of the hospital until things were stabilized and i I uh, developed uh, a treatment regimen that works for me and uh, so the the disease certainly is a problem for me I mean I was in the hospital last year but it's not this existential problem anymore. Um I i am no longer I'm I'm no longer obsessed by it and I no longer need to think about it constantly in this all consuming way that I did until I wrote the book. Similarly with The Guardians, which is about the suicide of my friend Harris, um The problem, of course, that Harris is dead is ongoing. This will always be a problem. My life is worse without Harris, and that will always be the case. But the immediate problem that I solved by writing the book is no longer a problem. That problem was coming to terms with the very complicated and extremely vivid, Sets of feelings that you have when you outlive somebody you weren't expecting to outlive. And so coming to, to just understand what those feelings were, coming to recognize them, that was the problem that that book was really enlisted to solve, and it solved them. And so similarly, this was originally a, a, a document that I was deploying in order to try to come to terms with this anxiety that if i didn't document everything i wasn't living my life well and, it's, and and so this this idea this this problem of ongoingness to autobiography this problem that you of course can't record everything because if you were recording everything you would just sit at the desk typing I'm sitting at my desk, I'm sitting at my desk and and you know there's no life anymore to record, but I got out from under that anxiety, partly by writing the book and partly by uh, becoming a mother to my son, and partly by by writing about the the sort of bizarre changes to my experience of time that that uh, motherhood brought so it's um. As I, as I said a few minutes ago, it's not the utter end of my diary, um, the sub, the subtitle of the book, being The End of the Diary. Um, the diary is ongoing, but the problem that was the original trigger for writing that diary is no longer a problem, thanks to my having written the book.
0: We'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Ongoingness, The End of a Diary, is the book. It's out from Grey Wolf Press. The author is Sarah Manguso. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to talk about languages, dead languages, invented languages. Our guests will be uh, Charlie Heeneman and Lynn McNeil from uh, Utah State University. Join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening
2: today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Spider silk has long been of interest to scientists and engineers for its incredible strength. Silk can be, by weight, a stronger fiber than steel or Kevlar. But new research has discovered that the strength of individual fibers does not explain the durability of a web, which can remain functional after sustaining extreme stress. The web's overall design adds to silk's durability to create a truly functional product. Spiders utilize silk for many different reasons, transportation, lining burrows, protecting and securing egg cases, and of course, for catching prey. Amazingly, an individual spider has the ability to manufacture several different types of silk, which are used for different purposes. In a typical orb-style web, there are at least three kinds of silk at work. One is strong and dry, making up the spokes of the web. These are the strands upon which the spider itself moves around so as not to get stuck in its own trap. The strands which create the characteristic spiral pattern are actually made of two types of silk. One is a fine, stretchy fiber, and the other a sticky, glue-like substance. Together, these two silks make up the part of the web responsible for snaring prey. Another important property of silk is that when stretched, the fiber stiffens. As more pressure is applied, the properties of the silk change, allowing it to become stretchy and flexible. If still more pressure is added, the silk stiffens again until it finally breaks. Originally, this stiff-stretchy-stiff response to stress was viewed as a weakness, but when analyzed as part of an interconnected web, that's not the case. A team of scientists from MIT noted that webs could be subjected to a lot of force with only minimal damage. Whether the force was localized, for example while ensnaring a large insect or more widespread over the entire surface such as pressure from strong winds, the damage incurred by the web was minimal. Only the individual strands that endure the most pressure break, while others stiffen, flex, and remain intact. Localized damage allows the spider to more often than not simply repair a web instead of abandoning it and starting over. Creating silk and weaving a web is a costly process for a spider. It takes up a lot of the arachnid's energy. The ability to simply patch the broken parts is a more efficient strategy, which requires less energy expenditure and fewer materials than weaving a new web. Figuring out how to mimic this response to stress on a material could be infinitely useful in the human world. Imagine a skyscraper in an earthquake that fails in one small place where the forces are strongest not in its entirety, as is often the case. That same earthquake-damaged building might also need only minimal repairs, saving time, money, and materials. Oh, the lessons we could learn from one of nature's smallest creatures. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
0: This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.